Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, Letters from Another Era. Rezala reads one letter from a father to a daughter. A trustworthy person, one of our friends, has told us that you have been seen going around late at night with young men. You are also seen very frequently at dances, masquerades, and picnics. From there, the letter, which dates to 1905, goes on to warn the young lady of the terrible things that may befall her if she doesn't stop this misbehavior. The letter is signed, Your Devoted Father, Yitzhak Funk. This letter is one of many included in a collection called Dear Mendel, Dear Razel. The letters touch on a wide range of topics, from courtship to business. What they have in common is that they are all translated from Yiddish, and they were made up. They were taken from letter manuals, or brievenstellers, as they were called. On today's podcast, we're talking to the two scholars who edited this collection. We want to find out what the letters in these manuals can and cannot tell us about the Russian and American Jews who would have read them. Professor Alice Nachimovsky is speaking to us from her office at Colgate University, and Roberta Newman took the subway from her office at the Yivo Institute for Jewish Research to join us here in the studio. Alice, Roberta, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Roberta, tell us, what exactly was a Briefensteller? Well, Briefensteller is a um, letter-writing manual. They don't have real letters in them. They have model letters that were provided to help people figure out how to write letters to one another, business letters, love letters, um, letters to their parents, letters to their children. Um, we actually think that most people didn't use these manuals for that purpose, but they were used to help people learn how to write Yiddish, which was something that was not actually being taught at the time. And the time period we're talking about is... Nineteenth um, century to about World War One in the Russian Empire. So uh, people would have used these as a template and just sort of filled in their name, or it was just this is the form of a letter. Now go forward and create your own letter. The, I think the idea was that it would be used as a template, but we can find no evidence that people ever actually based any letters on these, um, with the possible exception of business letters. So, Alice, who was the audience for these letters, and what were they being used for? Well, the audience changes as we move through time. So initially, the very earliest Briefenstellers were really meant for yeshiva graduates who suddenly, after they finished their studies, found themselves needing to do business and conduct social life in the Russian Empire in the world outside the yeshiva, and they obviously felt themselves really incapable of doing that well. So they needed model business letters, and they also needed letters to show them how to conduct themselves in Russian language society. So, you know, romance is coming into the Jewish picture now, right? First among the elite and later as time goes on, to lower-class people. Um, so uh, it was considered already necessary for even people who were, you know, formally engaged in the Jewish tradition in the period between the engagement and the wedding ceremony to exchange a couple of letters. And you want to do that right. You want to impress this young woman with your, you know, not quite, yeah, your worldliness, you know, your command of uh, non-Jewish stuff. 
when I was looking at the letters, I found them so wildly entertaining. And of course, that that's from the perspective of 100 years later. But they are so vivid and they're so funny. Uh, were they intended to be so? Well, one of the things is that there wasn't much else to be read out there. There was very little to read. It was a time when Yiddish literature hadn't yet entirely emerged. It was just emerging. There weren't even really any newspapers in the Russian Empire at the time that these books were being published. Uh, We actually have some evidence from people's memoirs that people did read these for entertainment. And um, some of them were written by well-known authors. Um, One of them was the playwright and novelist Shomer, who um, eventually came to America and published even a Briefenstelle here. And the other was another writer, Euser Bloystein, who wrote uh, kind of popular novels. And they became almost like brand names in the Briefenstiller world. So they brought with them this flair for literary writing. And you can sort of see the beginning of potboiler plots in some of these letters that never get followed through, actually. But, um, but they're there. So let's hear one of these letters. Uh, I want us to listen to the one called Send Little Rachel to Me in the City. Send Little Rachel to Me in the City. Dearest Mother, I am writing to you with a suggestion that for sure you haven't been expecting and which will arouse stormy emotions in you. I want you to send Little Rachel here to me. I will keep her close by and enroll her in a school somewhere or teach her myself. I am not making a fortune here, but I live a respectable life, and Rachel will not want for anything here. I realize full well that it will be very hard for you to part with this child who is so dear to all of us and engraved so deeply on our hearts. But you must consider that in the big city of Vilna, it is possible for a child to make something substantial of herself more quickly than in our little shtetl in the boondocks, where there is no school and not even a proper teacher. And furthermore... As far as supervision is concerned, I assure you that she will be very happy here with me. I will watch over her like the apple of my eye and will not let even one raindrop fall on her. You should know that I can't get this child out of my mind even for one minute, and my whole goal in life is to see the child of our unforgettable Rivka, who died so young, be happy. Think it over well, dear, and fulfill the request of your daughter, who awaits your answer impatiently, Hana. So what in particular strikes you both about this letter? Um, education was a ubiquitous theme in the Briefensteller. There are so many letters about young men who have been sent to study in the city. Um, this letter is, is interesting because it deals with the education of a girl, uh, most of the letters in previous letters focus on boys, even though girls at this time were um, just as likely, maybe even more likely than boys, to be getting a secular education. And um, and partly, I think, is this is a later Briefensteller published um, a- after in the early 20th century in 1905, and it has a more modern focus than some of the older ones. Alice, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, Here, I I think that this woman who's writing the letter is not married. In any event, she says nothing about a husband, right? 
and nothing about a husband supporting her. She's working in a factory, and she wants the little girl also to work in the factory, and that's a step up. It's modern. Uh, it's independence, and that's really cool. What are some other types or genres of letters that are included in these manuals? Uh, I, I think if, if I had to name an emotion that um, suffuses most of these Ravenstellers, it's anxiety, and it's anxiety about your children. This probably doesn't surprise anybody listening to this podcast, but what surprises me, we looked at um, other manuals, because all cultures had these manuals, and we looked at manuals in the languages that surrounded the Briefensteller. In other words, in Russian, in German, and then in American English. And the differences, the cultural differences that come through in these letters are astounding. And the venue in which it's most felt is relationships with children, like um, Russian, German, and French ones. Children are really seen and not heard unless they're young men behaving badly. And when they're young men behaving badly, they're chastised. And, you know, and then you see them, um, uh, you know, apologizing in very foul, flowery ways. Um, American letters are kinder to their children. Children are more of a presence, but no American parent is just fraught with absolute anxiety, but that's what's going on in the Yiddish. I mean, to the point that that is what you're supposed to do. I mean, that is anxiety kind of turned into art. And this is fascinating. Well, let's go to a letter and a reply that get at that uh, parental anxiety that you're referring to. Um, This letter is called, We Live in Great Anxiety. And Alice, is there anything you want to say about it uh, before we read? Yeah, yeah, you need you need a little bit of an introduction. So this is the Russo-Japanese War, 1905. So the Russians lost it, but this letter comes right before that happened. And I think listeners may know that the draft was a really fraught issue for Jews. Um, uh, Jewish young men were all liable for the draft into the Russian Imperial Army, where they were not well treated. I mean, and they were not physically, many of them, most of them, up to the task anyway, not to mention the severe hazing that they underwent uh, when in the army. So it was something that uh, people avoided at all costs. But here we have a young man who's been drafted and his parents, right? This, ah, you know, my God, what, you know, what's going on? What have you done? And then he writes back. So it's not only the anxiety that infuses the first letter as the kids reply. I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. We live in great anxiety. 11 July, 1904. Dear beloved son, Yoel Moisha Kostetsky, ever since we accompanied you to the Zdolbanov railway station, the tears haven't dried from our eyes. We live in great anxiety. Nothing in the world can make us forget you. If you saw your mother, you already wouldn't recognize her. Imagine, beloved son, compared to her, I'm a hero. My heart is full to overflowing, and yet I still have to give her strength. Sometimes she looks so terrible that I'm simply afraid to leave her alone. So, dear child, we ask you, please, write to us about your health and courage, and you will bring back our courage until God has mercy on us and brings you back to us. From us, your father, Yerachmiel, and your mother, Chana. And here's the reply. 8 August, 1904, Chifu. Dear and highly esteemed parents, 
What did you want from me with your letter? Until now, I've been cheerful and happy, and your letter caused me so much pain that it's impossible for me to bear. Why are you carrying on in this way? Why do you allow yourselves these fantasies? I am, thank God, not doing badly. In fact, nothing has happened to me. I'm healthy and feel, blessed be God, in top condition. I have everything. Do not lack for anything. At the end of July, we had a battle. The Japanese advanced on our right flank, and our regiment repelled them in such a way that they're thankful to be alive. Since then, it has been so quiet for our regiment that you can't imagine. The officers treat us as if they were our own brothers. So, beloved parents, please don't worry and don't be sad. You are squandering your health needlessly and have made me anxious as well. Be cheerful and happy, and I will soon write you another letter. From me, your son, Yoel Moshe Kostetsky. This is one of the few Briefensteller letters that actually references current events. Um, one of the reasons we were so fascinated by these letters is we really looked at them as social history documents. And in a very general way, they really do reflect a lot of what was going on in the Jewish world at that time. And they also may have been shaping what was going on in the Jewish world in the transition that many people were undergoing from living in smaller places to living in cities to moving to America um, to moving into the middle class. They were helping shape how people transitioned to that. But what's absent from these books is anything to do with politics. And that's because there was censorship at the time. And so they weren't going to sit there and write about anti-Zarist activities, even if large numbers of Jews were joining the Bund and other revolutionary movements. There's no trace of that there. Um, and strangely enough, there's very little proportionally about emigration to America, even though it was a mass phenomenon at the time. And that's probably for a different reason, because most of the people writing these books weren't interested in America in any way. They were reformers, educational reformers, intellectuals. When they thought about the Jewish condition, they wanted to tackle it in Russia. Um, they, you know, America was nothing. It was a backwater so America in these books is portrayed as a, a place for bad boys who didn't study hard enough and so they couldn't make a living in the Russian Empire and had to go overseas. How did the two of you come to work on this project? I had originally wanted to write a book about real Yiddish letters because I'd been doing a lot of translations of people's private family letters and I just found them fascinating as um, social history documents. They're just things in letters that you don't find anywhere else. It's a form of um, communication that is written by non-elites, and it's the only place that you get to see what ordinary people, the non-intellectuals, were experiencing and expressing. But it was kind of hard to figure out how to focus that and then, um, and I had talked, and Alice and I had met in the course of work on the Yivo Encyclopedia for Jews in Eastern Europe, and we discovered letter-writing manuals, and we didn't, I guess I hadn't been aware that they existed, and all of a sudden, here was a whole genre of literature that no one had ever looked at or written about or anything. Alice, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, Robbie is graciously not telling 
the world that I was her student. That's the other way that uh, that we met um, at um, the Yiddish summer session courses that YIVO sponsors. And um, Robbie uh, was giving seminars on reading letters, reading the handwriting of letters. And this is hard, and she is an expert at it. And um, so I never learned to do that. I, I absolutely could not do that, not from the first day to the last. But when um, we'd read this, the letters in class, then I was, became fascinated by them. I understood the context. And I teach literature. So for me, I mean, this is this kind of naive text. Yeah. When you teach literature, you're talking about really conscious text, right, that, um, you know, writers are crafting. And here we have a text that's, you know, just dashed off, and it's almost as if, you know, they're not being written with an eye to posterity or somebody's reputation. And because of that, so very, very much is visible. And I became fascinated by what's visible in them. So I started to convince Robbie that she should write the book. And then we decided to do it together, which was a fantastic experience. I want us to listen to another letter, which struck me when I was looking at it. The letter is called Advice on Child Rearing. And the reason it sort of caught me off guard is I feel like it alludes to a cultural argument we're having right now, a hundred years later, after this letter was written. So let's give that a listen. Advice on Child Rearing My dear, sweet daughter, I received your dear letter with the greatest joy. You write me that you, your beloved husband, and your dear children are, thank God, healthy and happy. May God always make happy with such letters. But one thing you wrote me about, my daughter, displeases me. You write that your oldest boy, Yankala, may he live, is quite a scamp. He likes to climb up on roofs and fight with his comrades in the street, and therefore you and your husband don't spare him any beatings. This really upset me. First of all, I regard it as the greatest stupidity when parents want to turn their small children into either peaceful doves or timid lambs. Man is neither a dove or a lamb. Man has been created to accomplish something in the world, and in his life encounters all sorts of circumstances which demand that he display strength, make use of his own hands, and he is also sometimes forced to creep into dangerous places. And if he doesn't develop his strength in childhood, if he doesn't get used to creeping, jumping, and climbing into dangerous places, he will grow up to be a weak, timid creature, and later he will be afraid of his own shadow. On the contrary, intelligent parents must accustom their children to fighting and to doing various gymnastic feats. Imagine the situation of a person who falls into dangerous waters and doesn't know how to swim, or the predicament of a person who finds himself in a burning house and has to jump out of a window or jump over onto another roof. When people like this find themselves in unfortunate situations, they are lost, whereas a good swimmer or a good jumper can easily save himself. About the beatings that you don't spare your Yankala, I must tell you, children, that in my opinion, it is the greatest injustice for parents to hit their children in order to improve their behavior. Beatings will only make a child nervous and arouse stubbornness in him. Kindness will improve even the worst child's behavior. When you treat a child kindly, a strict word will have much more effect on him than a hundred blows. I hope that you will understand that I have given you some good advice and that you will heed the word of your devoted mother who wishes you, your husband, and children only the best of luck. Sonia. Reactions? Robbie, you want to take Sure, I'll start, and then and you can continue. Okay. This, this is 
from an American Briefenstiller, and it really shows it. You know, I don't think you would have this kind of letter in a Briefenstiller published in Russia. It's really about the new realities of life, probably on the Lower East Side from the sounds of it. And a, it's interesting that a grandmother is writing it, someone from the older generation. But um, basically, she's telling these parents, get with it. You're not raising a yeshiva bacher. You're raising an American boy. Alice? Yeah, well, this is Shomer, um, one of the uh, pretty famous, you know, potboiler novelists that um, Robbie was talking about earlier. Um, his writing in America, and I think he is choosing Bubby as a mouthpiece for his own um, very modern notions of American child-rearing, um, which, uh, you know, very much turn on their head Jewish norms of preferring the scholar to the scamp. Shomer is preferring the scam to the scholar here. Now, I understand the last manuals you found were from 1911 or 1912. What happened at that point? Why did these uh, Brevenstellar become obsolete? Um, it, before World War I, there was really no formal Yiddish education available in the Russian Empire. People, you know, boys learned in traditional schools like um, cheders and yeshivas, Girls often went to private tutors to learn how to write. So these books were a very important tool in Yiddish education at the time. And after World War I, in Poland, um, even in Russia, in the Soviet Union for a while, there were formal Yiddish schools. Children didn't need to learn from these books from private tutors. They could go to a Yiddish school. There was no real need for these anymore. You know, one of the things about these books is that they weren't really meant to last. They were printed on incredibly cheap paper that is crumbling away now. They were regarded as an ephemeral kind of document. And, you know, there may have been more of them, and they may be lost. But here they are, this, um, this kind of throwaway bit of culture that really opens up a whole window into what people were going through over the course of a hundred tumultuous years. Alice Nachimovsky, Roberta Newman, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Alice Nachimovsky is a professor of Russian and Jewish studies at Colgate University. Roberta Newman is the director of digital initiatives at the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research. Their book is called Dear Mendel, Dear Razel, Yiddish Letter Manuals from Russia and America. It's out now from Indiana University Press. We want to give a special thanks today to our letter readers. They are Amelia Kahaney, Wayne Hoffman, and Gabriel Sanders. Thank you so much. It was really delightful. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivory. As always, thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next time.